Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, we are in verse 33 and verse 34, last week I started verse 33 and I said that was the first half, and then I started studying this week, and I found by doing the second half of verse 33, it created more room for a second half for 34 next week. So we weren't at half last week. We were actually at a third, I think. But wait and see when we actually get done. 33 and 34. It has been a real joy to work through this chapter. For me, it's been a, a tremendous study in the depth of God's love for us. Our title is The Security of the Believer, and it's only because of God's great love for us. And we have to mark that. Our, our security is not based on us. Aren't you glad it's not? Amen. It's based on Him. And that's what this whole chapter does, as I've told you before. It doesn't tell you to do anything in this chapter. This is all what God has done in this chapter. And that's why I'm finding it such a joy. If, I, if you think, well, Pastor, you're dragging your feet, it's, I'm enjoying it. That's what it is. I, I really, really, truly enjoy this chapter. And, and the more you dig, the deeper it gets. And I thought this would be, you know, an easy thing to put together. And when I was on page 8 of my notes the other day, I said, you know what, you're not getting verse 34 today. Because we're into verse 33, and that's the answer to the big question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. We're going to look at the second half of that after I kind of set this table for us here this morning. Um, let's have a word of prayer as we get started. Gracious Lord, for us to look again into a chapter that explains your great love for us is an awesome privilege. And quite a humbling thing at that. That the God of the universe the holy, righteous, omnipotent, all-knowing God should look upon us and love us. And love us to such the degree that you should give your Son for us to die that death that we so rightly deserved. We truly are in awe. The more we look at this passage, the more it works in these hearts of ours. And Lord, we need it. Only you can change a heart. And so as we come before you today, again, we're dependent upon your work in our lives to make us what we ought to be. Lord, we submit ourselves to you today. Your word, the work that the Spirit's doing in us. And truly, Lord, look forward to what you're making us to be. For someday we shall be like Christ. What a great thing you're doing. We praise you for it. Thank you for our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. The phrase, God loves you, easy enough to say, right? We, we talk about that quite often. Uh, in a world like ours, a cruel world, a wicked world, you don't need any convincing of that, do you? Uh, there are those who question God's love. They say, how could God possibly love us with all these things that go on, not only in the world around us, but in our own personal lives? <clears throat> things that happen and, 
and uh, love is questioned all the time, love is doubted. Um, this is the reason for our study primarily, as we work through this, is to concrete in our hearts the truth that God does love you. And it's even more than just a statement of love. I mean, I don't want to sound so general and such like that, but uh, his plans for you, his selecting you, his, his future he's designed for you, those are all so rock solid in Scripture. God doesn't have any doubts about you. He doesn't. That's what this passage is saying. And that's why we're digging into it like we are. And I can't wait to get to the end of it. Not that I want to quit. It's just, wow, some of my favorite verses are right there at verse 38 and 39. Paul says, I'm convinced. And I want us to be able to say that by the time we get there too. Alright? So, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Those are questions that Paul raises here toward this section of the, the passage. Who's to accuse the believer? Who is to bring them to court? Who is the one to call them in and question them uh, with the intention of showing guilt, with the intention of uh, uh, tripping them up? You may say, well, maybe this is just a, a casual thing. Maybe they just want to know. They just want to know. You know, some people wonder if that's what the world really just wants to hear. They just want to hear what, what Christians believe. And, and, you know, if we just said it in such a nice way, they're going to be convinced to believe us. I want to turn to First Peter chapter 3 for a moment. I want you to go over there. I want to show you something. Because this is what Peter has to say in, in his world, society. I think it's very much like ours. But in verse number 15... Peter writes these words. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, reading that in the first time through, you say, well, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. It sounds really quite nice, like a start of a quiet conversation, perhaps. Uh, the word implies, to ask, implies the idea of more, much more than just asking, but more like demanding. And so I thought that through a little bit, and I said, well, uh, is this an honest inquiry? Is this somebody who's just wanting to know what we believe, or is this an interrogation that Peter's trying to define? An interrogation with the purpose of tripping you up. Matthew Poole in his commentary said, either uh, they have the authority to examine you and take into account your religion, or they're asking with modesty and a desire to be satisfied and learn of you. Now, I step back into the context a little bit here, and I want you to do this with me, and you can tell me what you think it might be. Are they just being kind and want to know, or are they really... Uh, interrogating you with the purpose of tripping you up. Uh, verse number 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, do, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. What does that suggest to you? Sounds like a simple conversation? or I mean words like intimidation? 
trouble? That's the verse before it. Now let's look on the other side of it. Verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You see two words kind of stand up that look very uncomfortable? Slander, revile. Now, right in the middle of that, they're asking you to give the hope, an answer for the hope that's in you. Do you think they mean it in such a nice, sweet way that they really just want to know? No, it's not that at all. The context of what Peter is telling us here is that they are intending... They are intending to intimidate you, bring trouble, slander you, revile you. And it doesn't sound to me like they want to become like you at all. Paul's writing here in Romans 8 with a similar kind of phrase, I would think. Who are those who bring a charge against God's elect? We talked about that last week in some detail. We do have several who don't mind doing that. We know that uh, the world does do that. They are always looking for opportunity to bring a charge against God's elect. They're good at it. We know Satan is very good at that. We've studied that from several passages, that that's his work day and night, is to uh, accuse the brethren before the throne. We saw as well, our own heart can do that pretty easily, can't it? Our own conscience can accuse us. And what really comes down theologically is this. God could very easily accuse us, can't he? Matter of fact, he knows us better than anybody else on the face of the planet. As far as that is concerned, if he wanted to, what we're going to examine today is, does he? Does he? The second question we had last week in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Now, that's taking it much further than a charge, an accusation. They're literally coming to a decision on the matter. They are proclaiming the verdict on the matter. They are actually instituting the punishment and the idea that they're all the person, as far as that is concerned, if you wanted to. What we're going to examine today is, does he? Does he? The second question we had last week in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Now, that's taking it much further than a charge, an accusation. They're literally coming to a decision on the matter. They are proclaiming the verdict on the matter. They are actually instituting the punishment and the idea that they're all the, perse- uh, the prosecutor, the jury, the judge, the ex- executioner, all in one. It's a pretty heavy concept. They condemn. And it's not uncommon in a world like ours for Christians to be treated this way. Certainly in other countries, it's pretty heavy. Our country, we'll wait and see. But it seems to be more and more that way as it comes. Did Paul know that well? Yes. And that's what we found out as well as we examined this. At one time, he was the persecutor. Later, after he was saved, he was the one who was persecuted. He knew what the sting of these words would bring as he wrote them down. Who is the one who brings an accusation against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? As he's writing that, I, I can't help but think, you know, Paul said, I was there that day. I remember doing that myself. 
I brought condemnations. He probably knew the, the shame of the association of that. He knew what intimidation was all about. He was good at it, by the way. He knew the pains, by the way, as well on the other side, what it felt like to be whipped, to be beaten, to be chained, what it felt like to be thrust out of your home, to be put into a jail cell. Paul knew that too, didn't he? I'll read to you a passage or so that he wrote. 2 Corinthians 11, if you hear the words from verse 23 through 27. He says, I've been in far more imprisonments, beaten times without numbers. I'm often in danger of death. Five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was even stoned. He says later in verse 26, I've been on many journeys. I've been in danger from the rivers, in danger from the robbers, in danger from my countrymen, in dangers from the Gentiles, in dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers with false brethren. Would you like to have traveled with him? He was in danger everywhere he went, every setting he was in. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Verse number 5, when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. We had conflicts within, we had fears within, and we had conflicts on the outside too. He was surrounded with it. And then he goes in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, verse 4 and 5, to describe his ministry. He says, but in everything we commend ourselves as servants of God. In much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Folks, if that was a job description given to you today and they were hiring, would you take the job? You say, whoa, really? All that, Paul? That was Paul back then, right? different now. The world's much more sophisticated now, isn't it? We're much more civil than we've ever been. I mean, that was his experience back in the 50s and 60s AD, and, and, and we're different today, right? You know what Jesus said? He said, in this world you will find tribulation. Do you think he was teasing his disciples when he said those words? I don't think so. Now, I don't intend to spend the whole morning this morning just justifying spiritual persecution. I know it's there and I know it's real. And though we may not feel it in the same degree that these folks did, there are places in this world, if you want to feel it like that, you can go there and you will know it. There are brothers and sisters in Christ know this very well. And they've undergone some pretty intense things. But as I think about this passage, rather than talking about all that, I'd rather talk about the one who justifies us. And that's what the answer is, by the way, in verse number 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Boy, they could line up out there. But the reality is, they don't have a leg to stand on. Because the answer is, God is the one who justifies. Amen. And that's what I, I'm, I can't wait to get to this part right here. Because accusations and condemnations are possible, because after all, we are sinners. 
they can't find if they want to accuse us of being hypocrites. Boy, that's easy. If they want to point out things that we don't do that match us up with God's word. Oh, that's easy, isn't it? I mean, that's not hard for them to figure all this out. We've lived among those who have walked, who've lived, who who's even acted against the holy laws of God. The world does notice. And they do like to bring that out. And they do like to mock the Christian. It's one of their favorite sports. It's ought to be in the Olympics, by the way. Hypocrite Christian pointing out. I don't know what you'd call that sport, but they're good at it. But the fact is, you know your own heart. You don't probably need a lot of help pointing out things, do you? You've accused yourself, probably. You've condemned yourself, probably. And the words that Paul writes do have sharp edges to them. After all, Paul was even called himself the chief of sinners, didn't he? So, our, our look here on one side is, okay, when people condemn us, when they accuse us, we want to defend ourselves. It's something we do. Sometimes we, we want to find a way to answer them. And yet, this answer is not at all what our our minds want, so to speak, because we defend ourselves on our own merit, don't we? This is entirely different, folks. Our answer is that God justifies. God is the one who justifies. Well, you know what that is? That's throwing yourself entirely into His work. That's not you standing up one piece and saying, but you know what? You know, and starting to commend yourself or find merit in yourself, in other words. I've been digging for it and I can't find any merit in these verses for us. Nothing that we've done can I find on these pages to say, hey, let's pat ourselves on the back a little bit. God is the one who justifies. That's singular. He doesn't need our help. He's not saying, okay, um, you do something good and I'll stand up for you. He's not doing that. He is the justifier only. By himself, he justifies. And that's what's powerful in this passage in front of us. Because even when your hearts condemn you, as we saw in John last week, First John chapter 3, God is greater than your heart. That's a powerful little phrase. But this is where I want to bring you this morning. I, I feel like I've been just leading up to the sermon almost. How is it that God, who knows all things, can justify us? How is it that God is the one who can justify us? This is not a blind love. Some people say, well, you know, you're, you're kind of biased. Is God biased? Would you use that term with him? Does, does he just make decisions and, and ignores other aspects? Is he not true and righteous all the time? Is he not holy and just all the time? Does he love you? Even with all those other things, Factored in? He loves you? Isn't that a neat tension 
I think it's wonderful, the whole concept of what we're looking at here today. God is the one who can perfectly accuse us, but God is the only one who can perfectly justify us. He's the one who can condemn us. Scripture says this, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It also says, He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Those are heavy phrases. Concerning the unsaved, God's wrath is on them. God has condemned them, it says already. I found this verse the other day as Pamela and I were reading through Psalm 7. It kind of caught my attention. God, 711, Psalm 711, that should be easy to remember. All right. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Has he been watching us? Every day. If a man does not rebuke your shame, he took your grief, he took your wrath, he took your pain, he took your place, he took my place. When he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our place. The old song said, those nails were mine. That crown of thorn was for me, yet Christ took them and let me go free. Here is the power of the cross, folks, as we think about this section. Since Christ took our place, he so perfectly received the full punishment that we were to have. Perfectly. We say that he is our propitiation. Isn't that a big word? Propitiation. Atoning sacrifice is another way you could define it. Here's what it comes down to, and I think this is an incredible statement, but listen to it. In the act of Jesus Christ on that cross, taking our sin, God was Satisfied. Satisfied. You find that to be an interesting word? I'll show it to you. It's in Isaiah. Actually, chapter 53. Isaiah 53, all the way down to verse number 10. Isaiah 53, 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Satisfied. He will see it. All the way through here, a lot of these phrases, he, 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 could very well be speaking of the Lord because it says the Lord was pleased to crush him. It seems to put Christ in the in the direct object and the Lord as the uh, subject of the sentences. And as we get down to verse number 11, I tend to think that that's the Lord. He will see it and be satisfied. Romans chapter 5. If you didn't lose your place, just back up a few chapters in Romans chapter 5 look at verse number 1 
This is where it meets us today. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, we would never have that peace. We would never be justified. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, don't ever let those words get away from you on the page. Whenever you see them, stop and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. It's through him that this is possible. That's his death. That's what it keeps referencing here. When I used to work with the Owana clubs years ago, um, I recall working with these, these simple little kids. I mean, third graders. How do you teach them theological words? How do you teach them justification? And I thought, you know, the Owana clubs had a very interesting definition, and it went something like this. I think it's what I remember clearly, but I'm not positive. Being justified means that because of Jesus, we can look, God can look at a guilty sinner and declare him not guilty. And that's because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Theologically, the price has been paid. Right? Here's the point of justification. If I want to give you a picture of it. If you had car payments, and you've gotten into the habit for, I mean, when I read it or see it on the commercials anymore, 72 months? I said, whoa! I mean, the price tag, too. You've seen those, haven't you? My first house was cheaper than some of the cars that are selling now. But I, I think, wow, the price of a car. If you're putting out $300, $400 a month on a car, and you finally reach that last payment, and you pay that car off, what are you going to do the next month? <coughs> Send him a check just because you liked it? It's a good habit? You've gotten used to it? You might as well do it? Or are you going to stop and say, wow, I'm free from that payment? Feels different, doesn't it? You ever been there where you actually paid it off? <laughs> Here's the point. When we talk about justification, we, we base it upon the fact that God has justified us because Jesus took our place. That means he paid your price. That's what I've been trying to express this morning. It's that powerful. You have been paid for. You've been bought with a price. Now, if that is so, listen, God will never have you pay for what Christ has already paid for. That would be to despise the work of his son. Now that's not an excuse to go out and sin like the devil, okay? Understand that? You know that. We're justified, but we're called to live up to that calling. Boy, that's going to take a lifetime to do anyway. We're supposed to behave like children of a king, right? We're supposed to testify with our lives that Jesus has changed us forever. You know, this world desperately needs to see the beautiful example of a justified saint. It needs that. And that's what we're called to do. We're told to do that. But that's the reality of what we're looking at here. It's not your merit. It's not my merit. It's not something we've done, something we've earned, something we can find glory in and pat ourselves on the back. We stand justified because God solely placed it upon Christ to do it for us. And that's what happened. 
Now, look back at the question. And one commentator wrote it this way. Who can possibly bring a charge against God's elect? <laughs> I like the ad addition of the question. Who can do that? If God has, if God has justified you, let's consider the ramifications of that right now. As a believer in Christ, you can have the onslaught of accusation and condemnation to a point where it's overwhelming. You can have that. Whatever its source is, and however strong it comes, and to whatever degree it's laid upon you, and to whatever result it brings, we do have a constant reminder that we're sinners, and that's hard enough anyway. But Jesus says, take courage. And then this passage adds, regardless of the attacks, it is God who is the justifier. That means he's at the top, and there's no one over him. He has the final say on the point, folks. Now, I want to say this one more time. He has the final say on this point. So don't you think that your word is better than his? Don't you think when you start doubting that maybe you've got something that he never thought about? His is the final say on the matter. Can we let it stop right there? Can we just say, okay... God said, I'm justified. And can we not live that way? Can we not believe that? Because we know very well, as Scripture says, we are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. But you know what? We always stop with that verse and we don't go on to the next one that follows it. You know what it says after that? You don't know? You will. Chapter 3, Romans, verse 23. I want you to see verse 24, verse 25, and 26. These are potent. Because we always stop with verse 23, don't we? Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We say, yes. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed, pub displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over a charge against God's elect. <laughs> I like the ad addition of the question. Who can do that? If God has, if God has justified you, let's consider the ramifications of that right now. As a believer in Christ, you can have the onslaught of accusation and condemnation to a point where it's overwhelming. You can have that. Whatever its source is, and however strong it comes, and to whatever degree it's laid upon you, and to whatever result it brings, we do have a constant reminder that we're sinners, and that's hard enough anyway. But Jesus says, take courage. And then this passage adds, regardless of the attacks, it is God who is the justifier. Amen. That means he's at the top, and there's no one over him. He has the final say on the point, folks. Now, I want to say this one more time. He has the final say on this point. So don't you think that your word is better than his? 
Don't you think when you start doubting that maybe you've got something that he never thought about? His is the final say on the matter. Can we let it stop right there? Can we just say, okay, God said I'm justified. And can we not live that way? Can we not believe that? Because we know very well, as Scripture says, we are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. But you know what? We always stop with that verse and we don't go on to the next one that follows it. You know what it says after that? You don't know? You will. Chapter 3, Romans, verse 23. I want you to see verse 24, verse 25 and 26. These are potent. Because we always stop with verse 23, don't we? Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We say, yes. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed, pu- displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love those verses. Why do we leave them off? We need them. We need that reminder. Yes, we stand as sinful people, but God stands as our justifier. Amazing passage right there. That's important. I bring that to you as, first of all, as a believer in Christ, we cannot walk away from this display of God's love. We cannot do that. I have shown you over and over again how strong the Father's love is for you. And sometimes we still question that for some reason. We accuse ourselves, we condemn ourselves, we consider ourselves to be cast out of his favor. Maybe he never wants to talk to us again. We're, we're out of his thinking, he doesn't even want to look at us. He turned his back on us. We think all these things, don't we? We've forgotten something. We've forgotten that he loves you so very much that he gave his only begotten son. We've forgotten that the Son has paid the price. And if the Son has paid your price, there is nothing. Nothing. How many times can I say that before it comes to be understood? There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Look at the end of Romans 8. Verse 39. Just in the middle of the passage, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's the whole point. The answer to the accusations and the answer to the charges is this, and it will always be this. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, who was raised. Yes, who is at the right hand of God. Yes, he also intercedes for us. That's next week's message. James Gray was the president at Moody Bible Institute back in 1904. He was there for 26 years or so, 30 years maybe. He was a pastor. He was a professor. 
He was even one of the editors of the Schofield Study Bible, which some of you have grown to love very much. With all his theological training in, he was brilliant. He summed up all that he wanted to say on the matter in a song. These are the words. Not have I gotten but what I received. Grace has bestowed it since I have believed. Boasting excluded, pride I abase, I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. Once I was foolish and sin ruled my heart, causing my footsteps from God to depart. Jesus hath found me, happy my case. I now am a sinner, saved by grace. Tears unavailing, no merit had I. Mercy had saved me, or else I must die. Sin had alarmed me, fearing God's face, but now I'm a sinner, saved by grace. Suffer a sinner whose hearts overflow, loving his Savior to tell what he knows. Once more to tell it what I embrace. I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. At the end of the course, he says, This is my story. To God be the glory. I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. Does God love you? Are you secure in that love? God is the one who's justified. That's what we just read this morning. God is the one who justifies. Christ is the one who died for you. How much more evidence do you need to prove that he loves you? I want you to uh, enjoy a week of thinking about that. Meditating on those very thoughts. God loves you. He justified you. Let's consider that the final say on it. Heavenly Father, you know the hearts in this room... Lord, we would like to be what Scripture defines a Christian to be. We would like to be able to say that we're so close to the image of Christ. We would like to say that we walk in such a way throughout the day that every single step is like the most pleasant and the most glorious and the most righteous thing that can be done. And yet... We know what Mondays are like, and we know what Tuesdays are like, and we know the struggles of our own souls. We, we know, as Paul said, what a wretched man am I. And we've said those words ourselves over and over again. Lord, we are so glad we belong to you. When we stop and think it through, and realize it wasn't based on us, but it was based on you, the work of Christ, that we could stand before you, and we could claim our, this beautiful relationship as your children. That we can understand the depth of this love you have for us. And that it will not change. There's a great deal of power in these words, Lord, that we need. Because we need our hearts assured. We need our confidence built in this way. That we have a loving God. And he will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And nothing can ever separate us from his love. Thank you for that kind of love today. We're starting to get it. Help us to continue to grow in it and to live because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.